Hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blank. So glad that you're here today. Hey, I want to let you know we are just a couple of days away from our biggest event of the year, which is Dealmaker Live. You can find out more about DealmakerLiveEvent.com. Tickets, of course, are still available because it's virtual. We're going to bring this to you. We're going to basically condense everything there is to learn from every possible multifamily expert in the world together in two and a half days. So it's July 15 to 18. We're going to do three or four hours a day. We're going to have, uh, we're going to cover every aspect of multifamily investing from finding deals, raising capital, operations, and marketing. And I have gone through every expert I can to cover every aspect of that. So if you want a really compressed, condensed, way to learn every aspect of multifamily investing, this is your opportunity. We also have a really cool VIP experience where you can literally spend virtual time at a virtual roundtable with some of the biggest keynote speakers we have. We got Robert Helms, Tom Wilwright, Brandon Turner, Joe Fairless, all agreed to do roundtable, virtual roundtable. You're going to be in small groups of nine or 10 people and get the chance to ask questions, hang out, with some of these industry greats. So that's a VIP experience as well. You also get a recording of the entire event as well. So anyway, really excited about that. Go to dealmakerliveevent.com and sign up while you still can. I'm also excited, like I was just, I was talking with Jeremy Lemire the other other day and Jeremy Lemire is, is an interesting guy, kind of soft-spoken guy, engineer, but you know he, uh, he signed up with our mentoring program in, when was it? In he decided in, in late 2017, he joined the coaching program in 2018, early in, in the year. And by June, he had closed his first 28-unit deal. And then he added an eight-unit. And by the end of 2018, in the same year, he was essentially financially free. Uh, and I talked last week about Kyle Mitchell did the same thing. And it's just I'm just really excited about this program. I think we really figured out the blueprint of financial freedom with apartment buildings. It's just something that we can replicate over and over again. And this is something we do in the Investor Incubator Mentoring Program. So if you feel like that's something you you are able to do, you're able to invest in yourself and you value mentorship, this is going to be a, an amazing way to work one-on-one -on -one with a, a full-time mentor, work in our system that we have now proven over and over again. So find out more at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor, and you can set up a free strategy session with us to explore if that is, if that is right for you. Now, today's episode, I'm really excited to have Ellie Perlman here. Ellie is an amazing syndicator, marketer. She's an author. She's a coach, a public speaker. She'll also be speaking at DealMaker Live here in a couple of days, and I'm going to have her talk specifically about marketing. So we didn't spend too much time on marketing in this podcast episode because I wanted to save the bulk of that for building a platform, building an online thought leadership platform to grow and scale the syndication business. So she's going to talk about that DealMaker Live. So we talked about a, a bunch of other things. I mean, my gosh, I could have spent hours with a woman talking about stuff. I mean, her her past, her upbringing has been really challenging. Like every possible thing that that was a challenge for her, she overcame. Uh, she's not from this country. She came in here. She ended up going to law school and really felt strongly in real estate. So she got into real estate via property management and finally got into syndication and now is doing amazing things. She owns multi-millions in, in real estate, has built her own platform as well. So we jammed quite a bit about how to get into the start, how to scale it, what's going with COVID right now, what's the outlook, how to get 99% collections. What about financing now? What's going on there? And what advice does she have for leaving your W-2 job? It's just a fantastic episode from an amazing person. So join me with now with the interview with Ellie Perlman. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Ellie, welcome to the show today. 
Hey, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, you know, uh, you're, you've, you're an amazing person. You've done so many cool things. You've built a giant company. You've managed properties. You have a training company. You have a podcast now. And, you know, you, you seem to be like a, a very driven person. Where does that come from? Uh, drive? Well, I'll take you back in time about 37 years ago, um, almost 38. So I, I'm actually originally from Israel and um, I was born to a pretty poor family. And I discovered, you know, where my place was in society pretty early on and um, my early childhood and kind of understanding that there's another way. I didn't know exactly what that way was, but I think the drive comes from there, from experiencing hardships. And, you know, as, as a kid, for instance, when I was 11, and I was, um, I used to clean buildings and synagogues to make, you know, help my parents make a little bit of uh, a little bit of money. And when you go through that, I think, you know, it's kind of, um, it may look like a hard childhood, but when you're living it, it doesn't, that's all, you know, so it's not actually that hard for you when you experience it, but it does create the fire and the drive to not live this life forever, to protect yourself from, you know, living this life. Um, when I was 15 years old, I was sent to um, a youth village, which is basically kind of a, there were surrogate families that were helping raising kids. And I was one of them because their parents cannot, you know, take care of them. And that also accelerated my, my growth and, and my desire to not have, you know, I remember telling myself, when I'm going to have kids, I'm never going to send them to a youth village. They're going to live with me and I'm going to make sure that I'm on the right path to do whatever I can so I can afford to have them at home because my parents couldn't. And that's, um, that's I, I guess that's why. Do you remember, like there was an instance in time when, in time when you said, there's no way I'm living like this. Like, do you remember yeah. like what happened? Yeah. So one of the days I came back from the synagogue with the, you know, the bucket with the water and everything, you know, all my cleaning supplies. And I remember coming back home and I stared at the door and our door was kind of really old with tons of stickers on it. And it looked really bad. I remember staring at that door and saying to myself, I'm going to have a nice door in my house. I don't want to live in a house that looks like this when I'm going to, you know, when I'm going to grow old and when I'm going to be an adult and take care of myself, my door is going to be pretty. And I think that's the first moment when I actually realized that this is not, may, may not be normal. And also, you know, you, when you live in a certain environment and you see all the other kids, they get new clothes, they, um, they go on vacations and I never went with my parents to vacation. I think the first one was when I was maybe 18 years old and it was really, really, really simple, something similar to a motel somewhere in Israel. And so I think that moment, me standing you know, in front of the, the old door, kind of realizing I, I want a better door, that was, I think, my first, the first moment that I realized where I lived, where others lived, and kind of what I want for myself. Do you have a nicer door now? Yes. <laughs> yes. I worked hard for the nicer door, but yes, yes, I do. That's cool. Now you also went to law school. How did that come about? Well, when I was um, 18 years old, I was very religious. And in my family, when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you, you get married. And I thought it was a great idea at the time. And um, I found myself in an even worse situation because um, I had to provide 
for my husband and my ex-husband and I, and I was working sometimes three jobs, sometimes two jobs. And I realized that this is not sustainable. And I fought really hard to get to law school. I didn't have the grades and the equivalent of SAT exams back then. So I retook the exams and improved, you know, took more classes, more classes that I should have taken in high school. And I decided that I'm going to get admitted to a really good law school because I understood from a very young age that education was the way out because I didn't have the minimal amount of money to start anything, to buy any investment. And I wasn't even thinking about investment because at that point you're, you're not in a growth mindset. You're kind of in, in a, in a um, survival mode. And when you're trying to survive, you're trying to pay for rent. You can't even think about, you know, buying an apartment building or buying a house. And I worked really hard. Uh, it took me about two years to get into law school. And once I got there, I immersed myself in education and knew that that was my ticket out. And um, I actually managed to squeeze bachelor and master's in four years. And it was kind of a special program. And I you know, had really good grades and I got admitted to a, a really big law firm. And that was the beginning of really, you know, different life for me. Yeah. So that was kind of your turning point then. Yes, absolutely. Now you developed, a, when did you develop a love for real estate? Um, I remember when I was in the youth village, um, I, I was very militant, not in a bad sense of the way, but I was, uh, I was fighting for students, uh, for our rights. And it was a very religious institution and they did not allow women to walk with pants. We only had to wear long skirts. And I thought it didn't make any sense. And so I gathered everyone's signatures and I went to the principal and I started to advocate for why, you know, in today's age, you should allow it. Why there's nothing wrong with doing it. And I was able to convince the principal that starting at 4 p.m. after official school is over because we stayed after school. We lived there in that village that we, we were allowed to wear pants. That was a major breakthrough. And I started feeling kind of um, that, that that was not my destiny, but that was something that, I, that really fit my personality. And I don't know, it felt, it felt good. And that's why I thought, you know what, I'm going to, that's maybe my path. Um, they used to call me the judge. Every time I walked down, the, you know, the, the youth village's um, path, they used to call me the judge because I was kind of fighting for everyone and getting things done. But yeah, that was, that's why I decided to go to law school. Don't mess with Ellie. I got it. I got it. So... <laughs> That wasn't that scary. I was just yeah. very persistent. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, the thing. I, I, I see. I see a theme. After law school, you actually worked in real estate, right? In, a, in, in, in yeah. several, several jobs. So talk about that a little bit because that's interesting. Yeah. So I went to after law school. I went to uh, work for a really big law firm, and I was part of the international real estate department. So I was exposed to a lot of international deals, and this is where I actually started to really open my eyes and my mind to other possibilities. I remember my clients were buying buildings and they were also, there were developers and there were all kinds of businessmen and big corporations that I was helping creating, a, you know, building a project somewhere in Europe, for instance. And at some point I figured, I realized that I was sitting on the wrong side of the table, that I wanted to be my clients but at that point, just that was my first decent job. I was making money for the first time in my life. It was really, really hard for me to even imagine how I can 
own a building or a house, a rental house. It was still pretty far away from me, but I understood that this is the way, this is where I want to be at some point. And I just wasn't sure exactly how I'm going to do it. And that was 2008. And obviously a lot of interesting things happened. But at some point, I realized that I wanted to be closer to the business side of real estate, and I transitioned to property management. And, you know, people thought it was crazy. You know, you have this really nice job as a lawyer. Why would you want to fight with tenants and, and you know, collect rents and, and, you know, do property management? And I said, I want to understand how real estate works. I understand how the legal side works, how you can create partnerships, JVs, how you can establish a new project, but I I don't know, okay, once you have everything ready to go, then what happens? How do you take care of of things? And that's what I wanted to do. So you were exposed to to real estate, but you were probably doing from very large transactions and you thought that was pretty cool, but you you couldn't connect that size of transaction to your own reality. And it sounds like you hatched a plan at the time and you acted on that plan, which was go to a property management company. But what was your plan at the time? How did you how did you try to apply this giant picture of real estate to your own life? Like what was your plan at the time? Well, at some point I realized that I needed a little bit more education because for me, education was the key to a pretty big change. And I realized that in America, I will have more opportunities. I understood it from you know, a very young age, I think, because I have an aunt that she left Israel and she went to America and she was very successful. And that was kind of my, my, my role model. And I said, one day I'll, I'll move to America. And you know, I decided that, okay, if now I'm moving away from Israel and I'm going to America, the best thing would, to do would be to have some sort of a credibility, but how? Because I don't just want to go and start all over without any tangible, you know, something that can help me open doors for me. And education, again, was the answer. And so I decided to pursue an MBA. And I wanted to also learn more about financial, you know, about marketing and, and financial reports and how to start companies. And that's basically what fueled my decision to go to MIT. And um, that was 2014, March of 2014, I moved here. And then in September, I started, you know, I went to school for the first time in my life here in the States. And that's it. And then I never looked back since then. Yeah, that's awesome. So how did you get into what you're doing now? Kind of what was your foray into that? Uh, The proper management job was that here? Was that in Israel? Or how did you ease yourself? How did you actually get started in business for yourself? Yeah, so property management was still in Israel. That was um, four years back then where I learned everything there is to know about property management. And then from there, I transitioned to MIT. And so after two years, I basically, you know, I said, hey, Cambridge is great, but it's too cold for me. I want to move to California. And that's why I, you know, I ended up here. And shortly after I graduated from MIT, I started Blue Lake Capital. Um, which is my company, you know, today. And so, you know, at some point, I think after having an MBA, I knew, okay, I can always fall back to that. I mean, if things don't work, I can always get a decent six-figure job at any tech company, real estate company. You know, this is my safety net. And now, and that eased my mind because I knew I can try now, I can take a risk. And if this doesn't work for any reason, what's the worst that can happen? 
it's not going to be successful. I'm maybe going to lose a little bit of money. Okay. I can always go back and become, you know, project manager, product manager, whatever it is, you know, maybe an acquisition manager at a real estate company. But, you know, at some point you realize that everything you've done in life really prepared you to where you are today. And there was no way back because if I've gone through everything that I have so far, for me, working as an employee, meaning that there's some part of my potential that I'm not really fulfilling. And I wanted to try and, and see, I remember, you know, in back in law school, we studied, I, I learned about self-made men and the U.S. history. And that really sparked my imagination and my interest, kind of reinforced my interest in moving here. And I said, I'm going to be a self-made woman. And I think that, and that that's kind of what, you know, what I did. It was scary. Yes. You know, when you just start, you have some self-doubt moments and things are a little bit scary. But for me, it was scarier not to try it, not to try and see what can happen. That was, for me, scarier than anything else. Well, let's talk about that because, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they're faced with the, with, with the idea of quitting their job or downing their job or doing a lateral, even taking a step back to do what you did. I mean, you know, you went from being a lawyer, arguably took a step back and, you know, right. to a proper manager job. And then you could have uh, arguably another step back by, you know, going to school again. Right. And so a lot of people won't do that. They just, they just, they wouldn't. Deny. And you said it was scarier not to do it. Why, why was that for you? Because then I knew that living with that what if, you know, thoughts in my mind, they're not going to leave me alone. And I think at some point, part of it is, of course, from my childhood, the fire that I had to succeed and push, you know, I think if you come from that environment, it doesn't matter how successful you are. It's always going to feel like you have to keep going. You have to do more. Because I think in my mind, I can always fall back to that place again, even though technically it's, I'm not going to say almost impossible, but it's going to be very hard to, to be poor again. But I think it's, you know, that's one part of it. And then the other part is really believing in yourself. And it's easy said than done. Um, my parents always told me when I grew up, growing up, they always said, you're going to be something big. We believe in you. And if that's what you hear as a kid, why wouldn't you believe your parents? You believe everything they say, Right. And, uh, and that's why I, I keep telling parents when I see them, I'm not a parent myself, but I say, have to encourage your kids and tell them what, even if you don't truly believe in it, because they're going to believe in it. And once you believe you're going to succeed, you're starting to act even in a, con in a conscious and unconscious way, in a way that would set you up for that success. And other people are going to perceive you in that way. And that's going to somehow I mean, this is going to increase your chances of actually succeeding. And yeah, listen, it's change is, is scary. I think maybe as an immigrant, and I have a lot of appreciation of living here and everything that this country has been given me that I didn't have back in Israel. There's so many opportunities here in the U.S., so many. And I really believe that if you, you can, even if you don't believe in it, you can tell yourself, I'm going to succeed at some point. You, you might just might start believing in it. And that could be the first part of the change. Well, I mean, thank you. Believing in yourself is, is, a, is, a, is a key factor, right? Because if you don't believe in yourself, uh, you don't even try because it's, it's useless. Yeah. Why, you know, why try anything? So you must have had a certain amount of belief in yourself to do it. And your, your plan was being worked out, you know, I guess, in phases. 
when you went to got your MBA here and now you're thinking real estate, what was your plan? What was your real estate plan? Because a lot of people, you know, they, they might start flipping houses or doing this mm-hmm. and you're going to school. And what was your what was your big vision for yourself with real estate? So when I went to school, I actually knew that I would start a real estate company, but I didn't know what kind of real estate and school really gave me the opportunity to kind of explore. And, you know, you have, when you go to business school, you have a lot of companies that, you know, they go there and they woo you and they have all kinds of presentations and it really gave, it gave me the opportunity to explore and understand what types of real estates are, you know, businesses are out there. And that exploration continued even after, you know, I graduated. I mean, there's a lot of pressure when you're there. I mean, you spend so much money on, on education, you pause, you hit the pause button on your life for two years, you make no money. You got to figure out what you want to do. And some people just don't, and they need more time and that's totally fine. And I gave myself that time. So even after I graduated, it was still not clear to me 100%, but then I started to explore more. And I started by saying, okay, how about fix and flips? Is that what I want to do? And I started going to attending some events and listening and listening to podcasts and talking with investors. And I realized it's not what I wanted because, you know, it's interesting. It's dynamic. You know, you only have cash flow if you work. If you don't work on a project, the cash flow is not there. And I had an idea in my head of a certain cash flow that is, you know, coming in every month, every year. And it didn't just quite fit my, my needs at that time. It still doesn't. And then I said, okay, maybe, you know, single family homes and rentals. And again, I started exploring every decision I've made was based on education. And it was important for me to educate myself. So I'll know what I'm facing before I'm even starting. And again, I went to conferences, I read books and listened to podcasts. And I realized that I'm getting closer, but it wasn't quite it because I had a certain goal and I started from the end. I said, by the end of 50, this is how much I want to have a net worth. And then I worked myself back from that point and kind of reverse engineered what, how much I need to make every year starting today. And I realized with single family homes, I would need to buy thousands and thousands of, of homes or at least hundreds of them every year. And that was not sustainable. And then I remember going, I was on my way to one of the conferences and I was listening to a podcast. I think it was Bigger Pockets. And they interviewed an investor that was buying multifamily properties. And I didn't even think, I mean, I thought it was way too big for me at that point. And he was speaking about syndication and how he does it, how he raises money from investors. And I remember sitting there in the parking lot. I didn't make it to that event because I was sitting there listening to the podcast until it was over. And it hit me that this is what I needed to do because it's exactly what I wanted. I can scale. It will give me a certain, you know, passive income, even when I'm not physically remodeling any single family home or doing any active work. And that's when I basically started to learn everything there is to know about multifamily investing, syndication, how to communicate with investors, where to find them, and how you can buy a building, improve the operations, push you know, income, you know, increase income, and sell it at a profit. So in a way, it's kind of a long-term flip. But that, that was it for me. So that spoke to you. You said, I got to do that. D- didn't have all the details worked out, but you're like, that's it. That's, you were yeah. searching for something. You kind of knew it existed, but you didn't really know what it was. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. I love that. Talk, talk about your company today. What do you What do you guys do have? Like, give me the scope of your company because it's impressive. Thank you. So we own multifamily properties. We like class B assets, so they're not the high-end class A luxury buildings, but they're also not old buildings. And we like to moderate value add. So basically, we're going to renovate, you know, we're going to invest $2,500 to maybe $7,500 to improve the interiors of the units, maybe the exterior as well. And then after five years, we sell the property. And we do that with investors. So we put some of the down payments, investors put the other part of the down payment and together we, we just buy buildings. That's what we do. That's fantastic. And you also have fantastic training uh, programs as well. And so that's pretty cool that you're doing it in the podcast, which is, which is pretty yeah. neat that you're doing that as well. And uh, so if you could have a, a conversation with your younger self, like what would that mm-hmm. conversation be? And, and at one point in your life, would you have that conversation? Yeah, I would actually tell myself what I told myself back then. Uh, don't listen to the doubters, just keep going. And I had many, many doubters and they didn't necessarily, I mean, they, they meant well. They wanted to protect me from a heartache, from, you know, failing. And I, I just never listened to them. Um, I have someone, I, I had, you know, kind of a, a, an unofficial mentor back in Israel. And I remember consulting with him whether leaving my job and moving here would be a good idea. And I, and he said, he asked me, what is it that you want to do? And he said, I want to start a real estate company after I graduate. And he said, I don't think you're going to succeed. And I asked why? And he said, you're not a white American person. And these are the only type of people that succeed in America. And I looked at him and I realized he knew nothing about America and I real, and that was, you know, I, I realized that I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to him. I'm not going to take his advice. He taught me a lot of good things about property management and about, you know, communicating with people, but that, you know, all the doubters, I just did my best not to listen. People heard that I'm taking a, you know, a huge loan to pay for MIT. Tuition alone was $120,000 and they could not believe it. They said, in this amount, you can buy a house in Israel. And I said, guys, a house, that's not my, my dream. My dream is to use that so I can buy many more. And people were just not, I mean, I think there were a lot of them were projecting their own past failures, fears through their own specific plans. And I just decided, you know, that's not going to be me and I'm going to succeed. And that's it. Yeah, it's important to, to, to listen to people, but you also have to know, you know, who to listen to. And so yeah. you had a mentor that you listened to for, for many, many, if not most things, but you were able to not listen to this particular advice, which is great because, you know, you could yeah. easily have been discouraged as my mentor and he's talking me out of it. You could have simply acted on that and, and you didn't. And it's like that for all of us. There's, you know, if we can compartmentalize uh, what people are saying. Sometimes you might agree with or you, you, you like a person, you mostly agree with them. Sometimes you disagree with them, but, you know, can you filter out those things that are right, that feel right to you and, and whatnot? And so that's, that's really super important. I want to get your opinion on something. As you know, this business, and you talked about, you know, you being a, a white American, I don't know if he said male or not, but in this business, as you well know. Yeah, he did. <laughs> it, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a male dominated industry, right? And I'm wondering if you have a theory of why there are, you know, not more women doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I, I honestly don't know if I know the answer to it. Maybe it's because women are a bit more risk averse than men, and there is an inherent risk in investing in basically, you know, taking a loan and raising money and investing in a building that may or may not increase in value. 
And that could be, you know, part of it. But I honestly, besides that, I honestly don't know why. And I never, you know, I never really thought, not even once in my life that, you know, if, if, if I couldn't make something happen or I didn't succeed in something, I never said, oh, it's because I'm a woman or because I'm not American. And it doesn't even matter if it's true or not, because there's nothing that I can do about it. And so for me, the focus is, you know, what can I do to improve myself? If I didn't, if I didn't get the deal or if I failed to do something, what can I do to improve myself so I can get it the next time? If you're, you know, starting to think it's because I'm a woman or a minority or whatever it is, even if it's true, it's not productive because you're focused on what's wrong with society or with other people and not what you can do. So work harder. You might fail again and again, but at some point you will succeed. And America is such a great place because there's so many success stories of immigrants and women and minorities that did make it. So it's really, it really goes back to just focusing on what you can change and do that and not don't focus on others and because you can't change others you can't change other people and it's really destructive to think about it through that lens you know to be in that victim you know position it's not good it's not productive it's not going to change anything and if you're not going to try i mean you're never going to know if you're going to succeed and the guaranteed way to fail is not to try that's great. You know, uh, you're now a successful operator and syndicator, um, but you had to do a podcast called Ready to Scale and you have some training programs. Why do those things? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish there? Why not just focus on investing? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, part of investing is also reaching out to investors and kind of allowing them to invest with us. And through the podcast, I'm, you know, investors can listen to my podcast and learn about who I am, what I stand for. And that makes them feel, I think, more comfortable knowing who they're investing with. That's one part of it. The second part is I'm still a huge advocate of education. And through, you know, my podcast, I interview a lot of successful entrepreneurs and I've learned a lot about real estate, even through those episodes. And it could be about maybe raw land or flips or other parts that I personally don't, you know, don't really practice. But there's always something new that you can learn, even from people who are less experienced than me. Maybe they have a very unique way of boosting rents or operating the property in the way that I haven't thought of. And so it's a, it's a never ending process of learning. And I actually, I'm running, I have a document where I, whenever I have, you know, I hear a really good idea from someone that I've interviewed, I'm writing down these ideas and I'm trying to implement it in my business. That's one part of it. And you asked me also about the mentoring program. I really enjoy seeing other people's succeeding and be part of their path. There's something very rewarding about it. And so that's one of the one reason why I'm also doing this. Of course, you know, it's a paid program. So there's the financial benefits. It's not only that I'm enjoying, you know, helping people build their lives, um, but that's a big, big part of it. And I have a team, I have several teams that I work with that are part of Blue Lake. So that allows me to do basically everything that I love to do, which is talk with investors, find deals, run the podcast. I don't do it all on my own. You know, I have a team that edits the podcast and and invite guests. So that way I can focus on what I'm really good at and what I enjoy. 
and have the team take care of everything else. So what do you what do you love to do and what are you good at? I think you mentioned a few activities. You like talking to investors. You like yeah. you like showing up for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like what do you love to do? Or like if you had your ideal day and activity list, what what would you focus on if you could? Um, I think asset management is something I'm really passionate about, actually. Surprisingly, I didn't think that I would. You know, I I did property management before, so that's kind of uh interesting to me, but I, I really enjoy taking a certain property and then improve it. I think that's exciting when you see how the financials are, you know, improving and when you're able to increase the profits, when you're able to creatively think what you can do with a property, you know, if you want to add reserved parking, if you want to somehow create new processes or, or take properties and move them, you know, to work virtually, especially in today's DNA, in today's world, actually, with, uh, with the pandemic, these things are really exciting for me. That's awesome. Now, your podcast is called Ready to Scale, and you talk about building and scaling your business. Why, why do you love that part of it? Why do you talk so much about that? Well, that's uh, something uh, that I was exposed to back at MIT, how to build and scale startups. And I basically took what I've learned there and I've implemented in my business. That's what I'm teaching my students. And I think it's extremely important because if you don't know how to scale your business, then you're basically, you're trying to do it all on your own. You're going to burn out. You're going to, you know, your path to success will be a lot slower and more, you're going to be more frustrated. And so there's really magic about scaling because instead of doing everything manually, everything on your own, there's really a way to grow and grow quickly. In the startup world, there's um, lean operation, which is basically how you create a company using a very, very you know, lean resources and lean team. And you can basically implement all those theories and all those practices when it comes to establishing a syndication business. And that's what it is. That's what I built. I never wanted to be a syndicator. I wanted to own a syndication business. What are, what are some of your advice to someone to build and scale? There's really, there's really two, almost two, at least two phases. One is a startup. You talked about the, the lean, the lean phase where, you know, you don't have any revenue really coming in yet. You need to start mm-hmm. something. You almost bootstrap something. Uh, right. What's your, what's your advice for, for building and scaling a syndication business? I think the number one thing is to map out the business that you want to create. And instead of just starting and slowly growing, just look at the entire business from A to Z and understand, okay, if you're doing acquisitions, for instance, if this is your focus, then what are the different steps in acquisitions and break it down to certain assignments and tasks. And then once you have the roadmap, then break it down to who you can bring that can help you basically carry the certain tasks. So instead of trying to find a, you know, the deal on your own, for instance, and analyze them, the, analyze the deals, negotiating with the seller, closing, why not outsource underwriting, for instance, or outsource the sourcing, just finding the deal so you can underwrite. And when you have all the different tasks laid out, then it's easier for you to say, okay, I want to focus here. And this is what I'm going to outsource. An outsource can be I can hire someone to help me do that, or I can partner with someone, and we're going to be partners. And he can carry one, he can take care of one part of the business, and I can focus on the other part. And you know, don't rush to hire people as W twos because that's very expensive. You can find 
people on Upwork, for instance, and there are other platforms where you can basically find people and pay them by the hour. So you can set a very small amount for, you know, a, a very small budget could be $500 or 1000 or $1,500 a month. And I know not everyone has that, but you can assign, you know, this amount of money and have them work and pay them on an hourly basis. And that's one way of scaling because then while you're talking with investors, someone else is helping you look for deals and underwriting deals. And that's basically how you can cover a lot more than if you had to do it on your own. So what I'm hearing you say is be, be, know what the roles are in the syndication business. What what are they? And then kind of playing into your strength a little bit, right? So because there's multiple yeah. roles and some things you may be good at or love to do and some some are not. So is that what I'm hearing you say? Focus on kind of what, you, what you're good at, love to do, and then possibly joint venture or outsource or delegate or automate some of the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another tip that I can give your listeners is if you absolutely have no budget, and you're willing to train someone, you can post a job and hire an intern on Handshake. It's a website that basically has a lot, almost all the universities in the US. And you can either pay someone a stipend, could be you know $500 a month, which is very minimal for a part-time job. As a former lawyer, I wanna cautious people from hiring anyone and not paying them you know, as an interns and have free internship. There is a way around it. So check with your lawyer. I don't want to give any legal advice on how to do it. It's some, something that people should really be careful about. But there is a way to get, you know, to get the you know, students that are hungry to learn and, and improve, build their resume. And if, you know, without any experience, you can teach them how to do things. You can teach them you know, maybe how to help you with the website and do some marketing. Or you can, you can teach them how to source deals, maybe even underwriting if you feel comfortable and you can always review their work. And for very, you know, no, no money or very little money, you can actually have people help you build your company. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and the other one is just by offering potential equity, right? People especially want to get into syndication pace, you know, for analysts, hey, you'll underwrite for free and I'll give you some mm -hmm. equity in the deal that we do. There's so many creative ways of doing that. Absolutely. And this is why I love this business as well is that there are so many different roles. And if you're a generalist, then you get a lot of variety. I love doing different things, so I love it. Uh, but if you want to specialize on one thing, then that's great. And you can partner outsource her uh, to that. And I, I love that. Uh, Ellie, what are, you, what are you super excited about right now? Super excited about uh, so I can, the, the moment that I can travel again and, and go see my property. So I'm in Santa Monica, California. My properties are, you know, Texas, Florida, in, in Texas, Florida, and Georgia. I'm excited to go back and see them because we still carried, you know, on with some projects. I want to see the units. I want to see, you know, the amenities. That's the thing that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of eager to get on a plane. And technically I can do it now, but I'm, I'm still going to wait a little bit um, longer until until I'm able to do it. But I'm really grateful that I have a really good property management company that I'm working with. So properties are in good condition. They're in good shape, doing you know pretty well during, during COVID. So I'm not worried. I'm just eager to see because I'm, I'm used to fly out and visit the properties every quarter. And I'm kind of missing that, that action. Yeah, yeah, you and me both. I'm kind of getting stir crazy. I'm ready to hop on a plane. I don't care where, as long as I'm on a plane somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Ellie, how can people uh, connect with you? 
So um, if you Google Ellie Perlman, and Ellie is uh, spelled E-L-L-I-E, you'll see my website. Um, it's very simply, it's, you know, ellieperlman.com, and you can leave me a message. If you want to talk investing, you can also fill out the investor form there. That's the best way, you know, to reach me. Or you can email me at ellie at ellieperlman.com. Ellie, thanks so much for being on the show. You're a true inspiration to really anyone who has to deal with any setbacks, which is essentially all of us. So thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff. I just love her experience, her, her background. She has the ability to teach. And so definitely follow Ellie. If you want to you hear more from Ellie, join us at Dealmaker Live. Go to dealmakerliveevent.com and, uh, and make sure that you join every, all the speakers there, but specifically she'll be talking more about building online thought leadership platforms as well. So that's that's really cool. I really like her advice about, hey, what's going on right now? I interviewed Brandon Turner last week about this COVID thing, and his advice was stay calm and stay the course. And I think I think that is really, really good advice. I, I think it's very easy to get caught up in what's going on every single day, something else is going on. And you know, I I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I think I, I think I'm getting stir crazy myself. I obviously leaving the house, but there's something when you are really kind of bound. You can't do the things that you that you were doing it for in the same way, or you're doing it differently. I mean, there's something a little stressful about that. I think people are are stressed in general, which I think why we're seeing such unrest in the world. Uh, we have COVID and we have uh, protests, and and I don't know. I think humans need an outlet in some in some way, as misguided as it might be. But the, the point is this. As much as things are going on, I'm not saying you should belittle a sickness and illness and death and, and, and violence and injustice in the world, but I think staying calm and staying the course is probably good, good advice. I think sometimes we can use it as a distraction. Oh, this is going on. Oh, now this is not the right time to do this. And I think, uh, I think my conclusion in life is that it's never the right time to do anything. I mean, think about it. Three months ago, it was the hottest real estate market in the world. People were like, oh, maybe I should wait until it cools down. Well, it cooled down. Okay, and now people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, it's not a good time to get started, is it? So so when exactly between three months, four months ago and now, is it a good time to get started? Was it a single day? Was it a half a day? Was it two days? Like when exactly was a good time? And the point is this, it's really never a good time to get started. It's never perfect. If you're waiting around for the perfect environment, either in the world outside or in yourself with your personal life, it's just never going to happen. What I'm saying is if you want to get started and change your life with anything, whatever meaningful you want to do, you want to lose weight, uh, live better, work in your relationships, quit your job with real estate, the time to get started is right now. Now, should you adjust your strategy based on what's going on? Of course. Now, we're underwriting deals differently now than we did three months ago. We're building in six to 12-month reserves because the lenders require it. Right? We're not modeling a 3% rent increase in year one or two or three. We're more conservative. And that's okay. It's the same thing, but different. And I really reminding yourself of what your goals were literally three months, four months, whatever, six months ago, beginning of the year when you set the goals for 2020. Some things you can't execute on. Like for example, we were going to go travel, you know, to Asia and Europe this year. We had it all planned out for literally a year and a half and we can't do that anymore. And that's disappointing. And so that goal, I can't execute on that goal, but what goal can you execute on? And what, what goals are you deferring for whatever reason, for fear or, or anything like that? Just take a look at those things and stay the, stay calm and stay the course. I think that's fantastic advice as well. Well, thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Hope you'll join me in Dealmaker Live in a couple days. It would be great to see you there. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, 
articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.